Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, let's go ahead and get started this morning. Well, if we have a few people come in, that's uh, not a big deal. I do have a handout for you, but I'm going to wait just a moment to hand it around uh, just for kind of some opening um, dialogue, and that way you can't cheat, I guess, is what that would be for. Um, so favorite parables. What would be some favorite, par- you know, favorite parables that you have or just maybe even memorable parables that Jesus tells? Okay, so prodigal son. Okay, good. Prodigal son, probably one of the top three memorable parables that Jesus tells. Okay, others. Yeah, okay. Kind of the mustard seed, small seed, leaven. Okay, those being true. Hi, guys, come on in. Yeah, the seed in the soil. Good. Others that you can think of. I know, I know I'll mention a few, and you're like, well, yeah, duh. So we mentioned prodigal son, mustard seed, seed on soil. Any others you can think of? Okay, banquets, meals. Okay. There's a good the parable of the good Samaritan. Okay, so there's some of those. So some of, some of the stories that Jesus tells is what we're going to talk about today and kind of how they function. Um, and some of the things we like about them is that they're stories. And we tend to like stories. In fact, we spend millions of dollars uh, every year as a culture on movies and books and stories. We're a culture that loves stories. So it's also a very effective teaching uh, method. You know this, that if I tell you that story, I've told you that before, of the guy stuck in the cave for 30 days, uh, 34 days to be exact, and tell you he went without food, he went without water, he drank what was in the bottom of the cave, and then I leave the story off and don't tell you what happens to him, there's a party that goes... I want to know the end. There's some tension there. I want to know the end of this story. And you also have already in your mind, if you've heard that story, um, how you think the story is going to end. But if I tell you a different ending to what you expect, you either feel cheated or you feel like you know there's a shock value to it. So Jesus used stories, uh, and that's what we're going to be talking about today are some of those stories. Now, as we hand these handouts around, on the second page, um, there's going to be a chart And we'll not refer to it a whole lot. It'll be more for your reference than anything. Uh, There'll be a chart of all of the parables that Jesus told. And so kind of the the category of parable is not just an an analogy where he says, like, in John, I am the vine, you're the branches. This is more of a story kind of a phrase or even a wisdom kind of a phrase. The kingdom of heaven is like, and so it may be an analogy, but it's more of kind of a wisdom saying. So we're going to talk about some of the characteristics of these, uh, of these parables. Notice again that the Gospel of John doesn't have parables, which I was laying in bed last night. We had my mom in, and uh, it was a good visit. It was kind of the end of the day. My wife and I hadn't visited a whole lot, so we're visiting about a number of different things. Uh, church today, calendar this week, you know, all those boring things that parents do um, at the end of the day. And uh, one of the things I said is, did you know that John doesn't have parables and she was like, you know, why are you telling me this at 10 o'clock at night? It's still one of those things that I just go, wow, this is so, so different, so unique. You have the three synoptics that, that use parables, and John, who writes much later, doesn't include them. 
Now it includes other things where Jesus, again, is saying, you know, um, bread of, I am the bread of life, things like that. I think part of the reason is this, and, and this is somewhat of a just hypothesis. John includes more private conversations than the other three. So if I'm talking one-on-one with you, it seems weird if I break into a story and have this kind of teaching moment. You're like, what is going on here? Um, so most of the interactions in John are private conversations. That doesn't mean there aren't any public teachings to a crowd. There are, but most of them are even small groups, Jesus and the disciples, John 14, 15, 16, and 17, just a small group with Jesus. Whereas in the three synoptics, we have Jesus with crowds oftentimes. And so Jesus seems to use these parables in crowds. And, and the more I thought about that, even like last night, and as I woke up this morning, part of the reason why... I think, is that these parables serve as kind of a line in the sand. Will you, even if there's some shock value, will you choose still to follow Jesus? These parables, as we will see, have an ability to both cause you to say yes to Jesus and nod your head, or to push him away and say, I don't want anything to do with that. So that's what we want to talk about is kind of the nature of these parables and what they do. Notice uh, the first kind of six things, just some traits of parables. They tend to be brief. Now, the longer ones are still simple stories, stories that, you know, you can, for the most part, retell. So simple stories with simple characters. There's a father and two sons. Uh, There's a farmer. And, and so they tend to be also um, not either analogies or stories. They also tend to be common and everyday farmers and seed, and families, and sons. And they tend to have kind of this connection with everyday experiences. One of the things that's powerful about them is that we can still relate to most of them today. There's a judge, and there's a widow, and she's seeking justice. And we can still resonate with some of those stories. Now, we know this, that we're far removed from their context. So there's sometimes we go, okay, we need to understand a little bit more, but for the most part... Seed lands on soil. Some of it grows, some of it doesn't. Some of it's choked out by weeds. I live in Joplin, Missouri. I get weeds. I try to grow grass. I try to go a garden. I get weeds, right? So there, there are these everyday experiences that have the profound effect of even generations later still making connection with us. Number four, at times they are puzzling. The kingdom of heaven is like mustard seed. Okay, I get maybe the simplest point of that. And yet there's this kind of puzzle to what does Jesus mean? Even the disciples come to Jesus and go, what does this mean? And he'll corner them outside of the crowd. Notice what happens. If he's going to explain it, he pulls his disciples aside and he explains it to our disciples. And we have the opportunity as disciples to listen in to that, to that narrative and that explanation. But they're, they're kind of puzzling. There's this wisdom nature about this enigmatic feature of them. There's this wisdom nature where Jesus looks like the sages or the the prophets, or I would even say like Solomon in his wisdom. And so this was very common in the the Near Eastern world, but at the same time, it does look like the wisdom of the Old Testament that they expected the Messiah to have. Um, Number five, at times they're provoking. And we've already said that. They kind of draw a line in the sand. And and we're going to look at some of the context and realize Jesus is at times kind of picking fights. Like, he'll have a crowd there, and, I mean, it's almost like, you know, you have two football team audiences, and, and you start talking about, you know, the Ohio Buckeyes in a certain way that's going to be picking a fight. You know they're in the crowd, and you're going to talk this way about them. I mean, there's some dynamics to where 
the, the gospel writers say the Pharisees and the scribes were there with tax collectors, and Jesus told a parable. And you're going, he's picking a fight. Now, how's he doing it? He's doing it subtly. He's doing it coded. And if they pick up the code, they know he's talking about them. And sometimes stories have the ability to provoke us to change and repentance or provoke us to even harden our hearts further. These parables have that ability to say you'll either repent or you'll move further away. And I think a lot of times the parables are this. They don't let people stay where they are. So, So I want you to be watching for that, even in your own discipleship, to realize that parables will not let you stay where you are. They move you in a direction. The Good Samaritan parable moves you to become either like the Samaritan, and you realize the irony of that because the Samaritans were their enemies. So either you're going to be like the Samaritan or you're going to be like the priest and the Levite. You've been growing up your entire life thinking you should be like a priest and a Levite, holy like them. But this story flips it upside down and says, no, you should be like the Samaritan because after all, he loved his neighbor. So they'll provoke you to not stay where you are. And number six, they're surprising. Because of that kind of reversal, sometimes they'll hit you. Um, By the way, that's part of what makes them memorable. Um, I've read a book uh, called Made to Stick. It's a study on communication and what causes certain types of communication to, to stick in our minds, to make it memorable. And surprise or the unexpected is one of the fundamental, not only the simple, so the common everyday, but also the surprise is one of the fundamental principles to cause something to be memorable. I remember watching a commercial. It looked like a car commercial about safety features and everything else. And all of a sudden, this semi just runs through a stoplight and just blasts this this car. Now, that's not normally what you see in a safety commercial. You normally just see a car commercial. You normally just see all these safety features and the car just goes on by. Maybe they're swerving through everything and they all go unharmed. It looks like a car commercial like that to where the truck's going to come and they're going to, you know, something's going to beep and the car's going to magically move them out of the way. Their car is just completely totaled. And then you realize this isn't a car commercial. It's a commercial for insurance or whatever. And and it was that kind of moment where it took a construct of a storyline and flipped it and you went, oh, and all of a sudden you paid attention. Now, I don't know if you can think of other stories where that is true, but there are definitely movies where that is true. To where you think a movie is going a certain way and all of a sudden it flips upside down and something else happens and you go, oh, didn't see that coming at all. Sometimes it's aliens and then I roll my eyes and walk out of the theater. Um, but, it, you know, we have those kinds of moments where something is memorable because, it, because of the fact that it's, that it's flipped and surprising. That's true in these as well. We'll notice some of those things. Um, so we're going to walk through some parables. Here's nine things. I, these nine things are arbitrary. They're my nine things. I probably could have come up with ten. So it's not you know, meant to be a blog, um, but it is, it is kind of a list of things for us to, to look out for as we explore the parables today. Um, number one, most important, look for connections to the context. Now, what I mean by context is this. What's going on in the story of the gospel, but also what's going on in the history uh, that, that is in the world around that story. Okay, so again, sometimes it's going to be the Pharisees and the tax collectors are there. You need to make a connection to that context. So look for connection to context. Um, sometimes Jesus will be telling a story, and it's about the disciples, and they they look just like the story. And you go, oh, I see that Jesus is telling a story on them. Um, number two, look for Old Testament imagery. Sometimes he'll use images like shepherd or sheep, 
And you'll remember, like, the Lord is my shepherd. Or Ezekiel 34, they're shepherds who robbed the people rather than taking care of the people. They abandoned the sheep. They were just in it for themselves. So look for Old Testament imagery. We'll talk about that. Number three is perhaps one of the more difficult. Um, and, and that is this. Um, look for corresponding characters or images. Here's what I mean. There's a judge. Or there's a king. There's a father. And oftentimes... That father, king, or judge corresponds to God, the father, king, or judge. So we need to look for that. And sometimes there's a son. And sometimes we go, is the son Jesus? Or is the son Israel? Who is the character? And there's other times that the parable kind of, we talked about them being surprising, flip an image and there's a judge and you go, but that doesn't look like God. And we're going to look at one of those today. So we want to look for who these characters are talking about. And we want to make correspondences. Now, there's a danger in this. Part of the danger, um, even throughout kind of like church history, has been pushing it too far. So now, like in the, the parable of um, the seed, you know, we make every seed out to not just be a type of person, but out to be like a generation of people or a brand of church or something like that. Like we push it too far to fit into kind of our own construct of what we want it to say. When Jesus perhaps is just speaking in general terms about wisdom and the kinds of people that there are. So we'll notice some of those things as well. Don't, don't feel the need to push them too far. If Jesus needs to give you meaning, he'll give you the meaning. Otherwise, oftentimes it's a general wisdom truth that applies across the board. Uh, so we'll look for theology, the nature of God. Um, we'll notice that in that judge uh, parable that we're going to talk about. Who is God? How does he care for us? Parable of the prodigal son. How does God care for us? Well, you know that a lot of our theology about how God loves us comes from that story. And that story is confirmed by other things. We've talked about reversal. Look for reversal. Um, and there's some fun ones that we'll mention here a little bit later. Now, look for a clenching phrase. Here's what I mean. At the end of a lot of the parables, Jesus will say, Therefore, I tell you, da-da-da-da-da-da. And that clenching phrase gives you kind of that framework to understand the entire parable. So, so look for that kind of a, a clinching phrase or a, um, even a clinching teaching or block of teaching. Uh, look for some sort of des- desired response. This is more on the devotional side. Okay, if this is to push me to change, how shall I live? Uh, number eight, look for coherence. That word means um, consistency with Jesus' other teachings. You know, if Jesus says that the judge in our story is not just, and we go, oh, judge, must be God the Father. The judge in that story doesn't listen to the widow. He doesn't look like God. And, and so we should go, oh, Jesus is doing something different here. Look for it to be consistent with Jesus' other teachings. And then the other thing we want us to, I want you to notice is notice in the Gospels that oftentimes the Gospel writers group them into similar-like parables or themes. So you'll have three parables in a row in Matthew on the kingdom of heaven is like. Or in Luke 15, you'll have... A widow, a lost, a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. Three lost things. And oftentimes they're grouped in groups of two or groups of three. And as you read Proverbs and, and walk through those uh, statements of wisdom, you'll notice the same thing. Oftentimes there's groupings of these kinds of parables and Proverbs that are there. So one of the dynamics about these Proverbs that, that struck the disciples and perhaps um, strikes us as well is that at times Jesus acts like he's trying to hide something. The world around. Like the disciples are asking him questions 
um, but like, why do you speak in parables? And he'll say, to harden the hearts of people so that the blind can't see. And, and not blind, like blind physically, but like blind in heart, blind in spirit. And you have to go, what, what does that mean? So I want to pause. We're not going to walk through all these scriptures and say, here's what that looks like. In the Old Testament, we have a story of uh, Pharaoh. Moses comes and he speaks truth to Pharaoh. And, and in many ways, the plagues are Proverbs. Now, I'm not making a one-to-one equation, but they act similar to how Jesus' Proverbs do. They show that God is bigger than the gods of Egypt. Each of the, each of the plagues corresponded to a god of Egypt. So frogs, no, God's bigger than the frogs. Okay? So as these ten plagues come, Pharaoh has an option to soften his heart and repent and follow God or at least acknowledge God and let the people go or further harden his heart and thus incur judgment justly. Now, the same thing is true as we see Isaiah, but also how Jesus talks about his own parables is that when Jesus tells these parables about like the Pharisees, they have an option to repent and see and thus respond to God appropriately or to turn away from God, push God away, and thus harden their hearts further. Now, is God hardening their hearts? Same thing as Pharaoh. The answer is yes. Are they hardening their hearts? Yes. The answer is yes. God will let you go in the direction you want to go, but he will not let you stay in the middle. So if you want to harden your hearts, he's going to continue to push you. And and you know this is true in life. Suffering is the same kind of thing. Suffering will either cause you to come toward God and and see your need for God, or it's going to cause you to just so be angry at God that you completely turn away from him. So God, using multiple different tactics, doesn't allow us to stay in the middle, neutral on him. We either are driven toward him or we're driven away from him. And, and that is true in these parables and how they interact in Jesus's ministry as well. Okay, so that's kind of big picture overview. We're actually going to do like little experiment studies in parables today. Um, questions thus far, observations, other things about parables that you want to chat about. Okay, so the chart's on the next page. We're actually going to start into Luke 15, 1 through 3. We're not going to land here for very long because you're familiar with these parables. Um, This is the parables of the lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And notice the context, chapter 15, verses 1 through 3 is what I've listed for you in your handout. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, being Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Now, Old Testament context, we need to hear that word grumbled from the Old Testament lens of Israel. Okay? Anytime the, the people are grumbling, they look like Israel. God is not acting how we think he should act. He's not doing the things we think he should do. So they grumbled and they said, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Notice the purpose. Because of the grumbling of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus tells them this parable. Now there's a group of three. So the first one, the lost sheep, we go, Yes, it's telling the heart, theology, it's telling the heart of the Father. A shepherd who goes after a lost sheep. The second one, and and by the way, there's rejoicing. There's a party. The second one, there's a widow. She loses a coin. She searches her house for it. She she tears everything apart until she finds it. And when she finds it, she throws a party. We're starting to see a closing image, a party, celebration. But then here's the surprise. In the third parable, the prodigal is comes home. The father throws a feast party celebrates this lost son who comes home, but that's not where the story ends. The first two stories ended that way. Party, done. So it'll be with my father, like, you know, what, the celebration in heaven when one of these who's lost is found. 
in the story of the prodigal son, Jesus adds an additional teaching onto the end. It's kind of this exclamation point. It's this final teaching. What, what is the nature of that teaching, if you remember that parable? It's kind of an unexpected twist. Yeah. That the, the oldest son, now, old te- not Old Testament, but ancient world, oldest sons are seen as most respectable, most likely to honor their father. All of those things would be true. But also, um, when you're thinking of like how the scribes and Pharisees saw themselves, if they're thinking of God the Father, they're thinking most honorable. So this, the, this youngest son goes and squanders his wealth and comes home. You're looking at these, ca- these categories of people, tax collectors and sinners, <laughs> squanders wealth and comes home. And yet, who is it that's grumbling at the end of the story? It's the oldest son. And, and so this, these three parables are told not only from the perspective of how does God see sinners and lost people, but how are these tax collectors or how are these Pharisees and scribes actually um, interacting in a way that is unlike God the Father? through their grumbling and their concern. So the, we would go, correspondence, we would go, God the Father, Father. We would go, Shepherd, God the Father. We would go, Scribes and Pharisees, Oldest Son, at the end of the story. Now, there's a reason why the Scribes and Pharisees at times had a difficult time with Jesus, because he wouldn't let them stay where they are. He wanted to push them to see that they did not have the heart of God when they thought they had the heart of God. Now, he'll go so far later on as saying, Your Father is not God, He's, it's Satan. Well, he's picking a fight, and and he's doing so, I think, out of even compassion for them, asking them to come to repentance. And some do. Don't miss that, that there are Pharisees, even in the Gospel of, or in Luke's writing, uh, the book of Acts, there are Pharisees and priests that come to the faith. So some do respond to these parables and to Jesus' teaching in that way. So we want to notice things like that. Here's the other thing we want to notice. We want to notice uh, connections to context. We're not going to read all three of these, but this is a rare example of where one of his parables is in all three. And one of the connections we want to make in this context is John John the Baptist's disciples are coming asking about Jesus and his disciples. So notice, uh, let's read Matthew's uh, text. The disciples of John came to Jesus and asked this question. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your, your disciples do not fast? So it's a good question. Okay, We're, We have daily fasts. In fact, weekly fasts when we don't eat. But you, you and your disciples aren't doing that. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, part of the question is, why do you fast? Well, it's an act of repentance, longing for God to act, longing for God to bring about something. And Jesus goes, he's brought it about. It's time to celebrate. Okay, so notice that outside of um, outside of kind of the observ- observations of John the Baptist and Jesus's disciples, people were accusing you know John the Baptist of being possessed by a demon and Jesus by being possessed by a demon. John by because of the fact he ate locusts and lived out in the wilderness and was fairly ascetic. Jesus because he ate with tax collectors and sinners and was okay to go to drinking parties. No matter what they did, both of them lost because they were calling for repentance. Um, Jesus then goes on to say, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. There's going to be a time to long again, and we're in that status right now, a longing again for God to act. And so then verse 16 goes into this parable, and at first you're like, what is this all about? And and I, as far as I can gather, putting it together, I think it's this. There's a time for everything. And, and if you don't do the right thing at the right time, it doesn't make sense. 
So no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment because if you do, the timing's not right. The patch tears away from the garment and the, the tear is worse because of it. And verse 17, neither is new wine put into old wine skins. The timing's not right. If it is, the skin bursts, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into both fresh wine skins so that both are preserved. A lot of interpreters have done a lot of things with this little parable. And I think the basic is this. Don't be dumb. Uh, there is there a time to do a, a thing, and there's a time to do another thing. And right now is a time for my disciples to feast because I'm with them. There's going to be a time to fast. And, and so a lot of times what we do with those parables, we like try to go, well, new wineskins equal new teachings, and old wineskins equal the old covenant. I, and maybe that's what Jesus is doing. As far as I can see connected to context, Jesus is just saying, it's just not that time. The timing's not right, and, and it's not the way it's supposed to work. Um, a little bit more common in everyday place than what we'd like it to be. Now, I could be completely wrong on that parable, but sometimes context helps us go, okay, let's not rip it out of context. Here's what Jesus is saying. This is all he's trying to say, okay? And, and kind of a wise, proverbial kind of thing. Um, there's others that are a little bit more clear, so we want to look at this next one. It's one of my favorite parables, by the way, Luke 16, 19 through 31. So if we could, just so... Um, so that we change the voice of who's heard, I guess. Uh, if we could have someone read that block of text for us, 19 through 31 in Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish and in disappointment. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime have received your good things, and Lazarus and in like manner bad things, but now he is confronted. Comforted here, you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And, and he said, And I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets left them near them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent, he said to them. If they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. All right, good deal. Thank you. So one of the things that we want to do for this parable is we want to back up and go, who's the audience in this parable? At least as far as we can tell. And if you back up, one of the things you notice is again in Luke, Luke 16, is there's a grouping of parables, even extending really from uh, Luke 15. But if we back up to Luke 16, 14, which is not that much further back. Uh, Luke 16, 14 says this, uh, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Now automatically you go, Oh yeah, money is like a pretty big theme right now in this in this proverb, as well as um, in some of the things that are before it. So we start to make some correspondences. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here. Now, some other interesting things about this. Sometimes people have debated whether or not this is a proverb or just a, a teaching of something that was actually happening. And part of the reason why is this would be the only proverb where Jesus mentions someone by name. 
And that makes you go, oh, that's kind of interesting. And yet, what if I told you that the name Lazarus means God helps? Um, that becomes kind of an interesting code because here this entire parable, this guy isn't being helped by this rich man. And yet, in the end of the story, obviously, God is the one who helps him. Um, so there's some interesting things that play out. Obviously, you have simple characters. You have two characters, Abraham a little bit, but really just Abraham's side, the idea that there's a promise for the person who uh, comes to the end of life. There's definitely reversal here. I mean, you have the rich man who's clothed in purple and fine linen. He's feasting every day on the flip side at his gate, which a gate is, you know, a gate is a place for a compound. Uh, we, we think of houses. This would be like someone parked by his garage, right? Somewhere he goes in and out of his complex every single day. Here's this, this poor man who's out there, and he's not covered with clothes. He's covered with sores. And rather than being feasting every day, he desires to be fed with whatever falls off of this rich man's table. And, and so notice again, just this contrasting of two. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The only comfort he had is not from the rich man, but from dogs. So you have these two contrasting characters. And yet notice what happens in verse 22. The poor man dies and, as his name is true, the, and he was carried, or so the Lord helps. He's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man Notice the simplicity of this. Also died and was buried. So the poor man doesn't even seem to get a funeral. He, although spiritually he's carried to Abraham's side by, these, by the angels. The rich man died and was buried. So he has this funeral. Now you could go back to the Old Testament and the book of Ecclesiastes. I just read it this week and again reminded of like the vanity of life. You'd be very wealthy you end up in the same place as a poor guy. You die, you're in Sheol, which is the place of the dead, which by the way is also Hades. Hades is not necessarily equated with hell, um, but it is the, the abode of the dead where you go. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's where the picture is where everyone goes. In the New Testament, we start to get this picture that the abode of the dead, there is a, a part of the abode of the dead that is for those who are unbelievers or unfaithful and paradise, as Jesus would say perhaps to the to the uh, man on the cross next to him, uh, an abode of the dead where you go if you are faithful. And we get that picture from Revelation and another place. So a, a spiritual place of existence until Jesus comes back and restores new heaven and new earth. And Hades is that same kind of a umbrella term that just applies to the place of where dead people uh, go after they leave this earth. So we have this, this contrast between the two. And in Hades, he's in torment. So notice even here, we have... And I would say this, we don't have descriptive teaching, uh, in other words, one-to-one -one exact detail of what it looks like, but we do have some teaching on afterlife before we get eternal existence with Jesus with a resurrected body. Comfort, Abraham's side, paradise, as Jesus says, and we have a boat of the dead and judgment and torment already being a part of that. So notice we have the flip. The person who's comforted is now in torment. So he lifts up his eyes. He sees Abraham. Notice a little bit of the parabolic nature of this. Like there's a chasm that's two grades across. But somehow he's able to communicate with Abraham. Okay? Parables don't have, they can have gaps because it's teaching you a principle. It's not teaching you like geography of these two, these two places. Okay? So he looks up, lifts his eyes, and notice what he wants. He wants Lazarus to comfort him. I want you to see the injustice and even the arrogance of this guy. Okay, he has had this guy at his gate every single day wanting comfort. 
and not hardly even getting the food that fell from his table. Now the roles are reversed, and he wants Lazarus to come and comfort him. You kind of expect judgment at this point, right? So even, in, in fact, let me pause it just a moment and say this. C.S. Lewis says about kind of um, eternal judgment, he says one of the things that if you remove God's presence and God's um, truth being spoken into our lives into eternity, he says part of the nature of eternity in hell is that we just continue in this deep dive of who we are without God. And, and we see a little bit of that here. Like he just continues to be selfish, even more so. And so he asks for this. He, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. Lazarus received bad things. Now he's comforted and you're in anguish. Besides all this, there is this great chasm that's fixed. Now we come through and he says, Okay, if not me, then send Lazarus back. Now there is some irony in this. You know what the irony is. There is a guy named Lazarus that, that historically is brought back from the dead. And guess what? The same group of Pharisees wanted to do to that Lazarus. They wanted to kill him. Think about some of that irony. Okay, if you send Lazarus back, we'll believe in you. No, you won't. If you won't believe Moses and the prophets, you're not going to believe him. And so we have this kind of indictment that is there. And I would say that this phrase, verse 30, is kind of that clincher phrase. Uh, or, excuse me, in verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. There is a little bit of foreshadowing in our story. Even if Jesus raises from the dead even if Lazarus raised from the dead, they will not believe. Why? Because they want to be comforted in this life with the money that they have. Going back to verse 14, they loved money. And so this, this parable is one of those that um, we honestly at times need to go, what does this teach me? Well, we can actually not have the heart of God if moment after moment in our life we're more concerned about our comfort than providing comfort for others who need it. It's, it's a hard teaching. And sometimes Jesus pushes us to not be neutral um, in how we interact. And, I, and I'm going to acknowledge this is a hard teaching for me. Because sometimes I'll drive by the people at Walmart and go, how do, I, how do I interact in this way so that I'm not like this man in this text, this clothed in fine purple? Um, and if it's not that, it's the, the guy that I run past every single day on the Frisco Trail. Uh, he lives probably last couple nights at Souls Harbor. But how do I interact? I know that there's a few people who leave like bags of food out on the bridge on the Frisco Trail for him because he looks in them and takes some of them back. And he has little hideouts where he camps out each night. Um, but every time I run by him, like this kind of a parable, this kind of a teaching pushes me to go, you can't just be neutral. You have to do something. And, and maybe there is, in, in a, you, some of you have listened to maybe even some of the teaching on sometimes there's helping that hurts and sometimes there's helping that helps. And, um, and, of course, there's a ministry here in town as well that talks about ministry to homeless and how to help them rather than just perpetuate this behavior. But, but I at least need to acknowledge I need to do something when this person is constantly at my gate. I see them all the time. What am I going to do? Um, so this parable doesn't allow us to remain neutral. Um, and, and when we look at the Gospels, we recognize as well that there is also some teaching about comfort here. That if we find ourselves afflicted, is there is this promise that we will at time at some point be comforted. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that most often um, it is those who have experienced difficulty, pain, or at least insecurity in their life who are desperate for Jesus, desperate for God. 
And Jesus would teach another thing, saying it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. More difficult than it is a camel to go through an eye of a, a needle. And I think when he says needle, he actually means like needle, sewing needle. And part of that reason is because they don't need comfort. They don't need hope. They don't need promise. Um, so this parable is one of those that doesn't leave us neutral. Thoughts or other observations about that? Okay, let's, let's come down to the next one, looking for corresponding characters. And this is one where I go, caution, because sometimes we can um, mistake who the court... And, and this part of the surprise, I think, in this parable. Jesus told them another parable. This is Luke 18. So if you want to back up to context, um, notice there. Um, this context, by the way, in verse 1, uh, notice is that he wants to teach them to pray and not lose heart. Why do we lose heart when we pray? Can I ask that just like devotionally, personally? Why do we lose... I struggle with prayer sometimes. And I can, I'll be first to confess. I struggle with prayer sometimes. Why do we struggle with prayer? You get distracted. Number one, for me, yes. Part of the reason I write out my prayers is because I like focus. Okay? What else? Why is it hard to pray consistently? Okay. Yeah. Like, if God already knows what I need, why do I have to tell him? And if God already knows what I need, um, and he says no, like, what's the point? Okay, good. Anything else? I know one of the dynamics um, that I have is, like, I've already asked him. I've asked him to fix this. So I don't need to ask him again. Um, so what is the nature of God? And this, this corresponds to that question that we have about prayer. So he tells them this parable so that they won't lose heart and give up in praying. In a certain city, there was a judge. Now, automatically, when we think judge, we kind of, because even in some of the other parables, judge equals God. And that makes sense to us. However, this next phrase helps us to go, oh, wait, maybe this judge isn't God. So this judge neither feared God nor respected mankind. That's not the kind of judge that we have in God. Verse 3, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, automatically, if you're listening to Jesus and you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know a couple things. Number one, God deeply cares about widows. Deeply cares about justice for widows. In fact, in fact part of the reason why Israel and Judah, the southern kingdom, northern kingdom, were allowed to be overthrown by foreign kingdoms is because they refused to give justice to the orphan and the widow. Refused to give justice. The minor prophets talk about it over and over and over again. They unfairly treated those who were most vulnerable in their communities. Which sometimes we could go, does that happen today? Maybe on a systemic scale, yes. We have to be aware of those kinds of things. So we kind of already have this Old Testament. Remember what I said, look for Old Testament imagery. We have this Old Testament imagery that's here. So give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. This is not a God kind of judge. So after, excuse me, verse 14, for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, Question, is Jesus saying that we have to like do this to God, that we have to just keep bugging him? Like just nonstop nagging him to get justice and to get the things that we absolutely need. I mean, she's not really even asking for what she wants. She's asking for justice. She's asking for freedom from her adversary. So part of us hears this parable and we go, that's what I need to do. 
I need to be like this widow and just keep knocking on the gates of heaven in order to get God to hear me. It sounds a little bit kind of like that story of Elijah where the prophets of Baal are like cutting themselves and dancing and shouting, trying to get in. And Elijah's like, is your God going to the bathroom? Is he ignoring you? What's going on? That seems like this parable if we have a misunderstanding of who that judge is. So finally, because of this bothering him, the judge says, I will give her justice so she'll not beat me down by her continual coming. Here's the flip. And the Lord said, "Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and I will not get, uh, and will not God." So now we have a flip, and will not God give justice to His chosen, who cry out to Him day and night? Will He delay? So we have two questions: Will God ultimately give justice? Will God delay? I tell you, He will give them justice, and He'll do it speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? So there's this tension there of faith that says when, when Jesus returns, will he find those who, who have this faith that God is good, that God hears them, and that he will respond? Now, this doesn't answer all of our questions. It doesn't leave us in a place where we never have tension with prayer, but it does answer some of them. The fact that God cares about us, not like this unjust judge, that God listens to us, and that God will answer us. And speedily, we recognize, is fairly relative, um, but at the same time, he'll answer us. Maybe the answer is no, um, but he will answer us. But ultimately, when the Son of Man comes, will he, will he find those who believe in the ultimate justice and goodness and the ability to listen of God? Because ultimately, our prayers of healing are all going to be answered. Ultimately, our prayers of justice are all going to be answered if we have that kind of faith that God is the God, not like this judge. So kind of, again, one of those parables where you have to go, okay, who do these characters correspond to? Who's the widow? And, and who is um, the judge? And I would even argue that for the widow, a lot of times these individuals not, not necessarily represent only just us as individuals, but oftentimes represent like a people. And so, you know, we as a people, we ask God for justice. We ask God for common, to come and make things right. And, and yet, notice again, we're not bothering him. But there is a relational side of it that goes... Like, God still wants us to come and ask. And that's that tension I feel. Like, why does God want if he knows? Because he wants the relationship. Why do I want my kids to come and say, Dad, can I have something for breakfast? Well, because there's a relationship that's here. And, and part of them asking is part of them needing me and part of them relating with me and some of those dynamics that take place. So we've been in, in Luke. We're going to be in Luke for one more. Um, again, another uh, parable in that context of uh, the, the money passage that we had before. So Luke 16, 1 through 8. And again, looking at kind of the clinching phrase in this. Would someone read that one for us? He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, Hundreds of measures of oil. A hundred measures of oil, he said to him. Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. All right. 
I'm gonna have you stop right there. So what, if we're in the business world and we have a manager, we're getting ready to fire him, okay? And this manager goes and takes the bills and makes everyone's bill half. What do we call that? Embezzlement, corruption, all kinds of things, all right? Dishonest, it's shrewd, but it's also dishonest. And, and that's what this parable has all kinds of names. The shrewd manager, the dishonest manager. I mean, we could slap all kinds of names on this. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, and then we have to go, what is going on here? Now, the next phrase is even gonna be more so like, what is going on here? So go ahead and read that phrase for us. Master commands the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of life. Okay, so right away you go, okay, corresponding characters, who's who? And, and you may go master, master's always God. Manager, always us. So we're supposed to be corrupt. Wait, what? We're supposed to be dishonest. Wait, what? Now, this closing phrase or this clenching phrase actually helps us. That this parable is not about us. The manager is not about God the Father. But there is a correspondence. This, this uh, manager of money knows what's going to happen. He knows the end of the story. I'm not going to work here anymore. So I better use my possessions in order to provide for myself after I leave this job. So I'm going to build relationships with people. I'm going to use the master's money to build relationships with people so they'll welcome me in and be like, man, you took care of me. I'm going to take care of you. He builds these networks. I mean, you know people like this, by the way, who use work networks to like work themselves out of that company and actually start their own company. And so he works himself out of a place. Now, what Jesus commends him for is using earthly possessions to build relationships. Now, he also goes, um, the world is sometimes better at this than you are as people who are in the kingdom. Now, so this, this clenching phrase, notice, the master commended the dishonest manager for his, not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness. So shrewdness is one of the things the parable is commending, being shrewd. Now, by shrewd, you're thinking wise, or also just in the sense, you, you might think conniving, but just shrewd in the idea of using what is at your disposal because you know what the end of the story is and you know what's going to matter most. Now, as we come later on to this next phrase, for the sons of the world are, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the sons of light. There is this dynamic where Jesus is going, you know the end of the story. You know the end of what this world is going to look like. You know that material possessions are not going to matter at all. They're going to be worthless. You're a manager, and you have at your disposal earthly possessions, you also have relationships. And in the end, none of these earthly possessions are going to be worth anything, but relationships are going to be worth everything. Be shrewd in how you use your earthly possessions so that you can build relationships that will extend in. Now we come to the end of this parable in Luke 16, which I did not put on uh, intentionally on your handout. So this ends in verse 10. In the, the very next, uh, in your handout, it ends in verse 8, excuse me. In the very next verse is verse 9. And I tell you, Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. Um, that word could also just be kind of that word money. So make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So the, the correspondence is this. I want you to use money that's not going to last. It's cotton, it's ink, it's paper. It's not going to go into eternity to do what matters most, which is build relationships with people who will welcome you into eternity. So use your possessions to impact people um, so that you can have kind of this shrewdness about you. Why, why is that shrewd? Well, because certain things matter, certain things don't. Certain things have value, certain things don't. Again, I think Jesus, when he says, where your treasures, your heart will be also, 
and he talks about even treasure in heaven, store up treasure in heaven, he's actually talking about storing up relationships and people in heaven rather than storing up money in heaven. But I think the riddle of that is that if, if what you think of treasure is money, you're going to think of streets of gold in heaven being have places where you get lots of money. But if you think of treasure like God does as being people, you are my treasured possession, he says to Israel, then you're going to want to store up and move everything you can into impacting people because that's what God ultimately treasures. Um, this is a difficult parable. Um, questions, thoughts about it thus far? Now, in verse 10, he's going to come down to kind of this treasure idea, but notice um, what he says. Um, and, and again, this isn't on your handout. So verse 10 um, in, in Luke 16. Um, he's going to say, One who is faithful with very little is also faithful with much, and one who is dishonest with very little is also dishonest with much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So if you're not going to be a dishonest manager, and you're going to use the resources God has given you, and you're going to use them in a way that the master desires, you're going to be shrewd about using your physical resources to invest in the things that God cares about most. You can't love both God and money. So if you love the things that God loves and you love God, then you'll love people. Um, and notice again in verse 14 is the hinge. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they made fun of him. Now that's like this indictment flashlight on their hearts. And, and you want to ask the question about like in context, who, who is the, the manager who doesn't use resources in the way that God wants them to? It's them, yet again. So no wonder in Luke, over and over again, the Pharisees get frustrated with Jesus. Um, so we want to look at another one. Um, we want to look at um, Matthew 18. And this one is about forgiveness. Um, now there's some, Old Testament, uh, there's some Old Testament connections to this. And, and one of them is kind of this really strange um, Old Testament verse that happens early on in the book of Genesis. It's right after the Cain killing Abel story. Um, and so I'm going to actually turn over there. You don't have to with me. Um, but there's this weird lineage of Cain. And at the very end of Cain's story, uh, one of his grandsons says this, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. You have this like revenge text that becomes this heritage of Cain. Now you know this, Cain's story is also our story. Spilling blood of our brothers is also our story. And revenge is our story. Now Jesus is going to use that 70 times 7 or 77 times and say, no, 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 it's not about how often you have revenge. It's about how often you forgive. You want to be sons of not Adam, but sons of the Messiah, Jesus? Then forgiveness, not revenge, is the new storyline. So there's some Old Testament context here. We also have, obviously, coherence with Jesus' other teaching. So Peter comes up to him and says, Lord, um, how, often should I, um, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, which, according to the rabbinic teaching, Peter's being very generous here. So seven times is kind of this like, oh, yeah, seven times. I mean, Jesus, I know your heart. You want me to forgive. Seven times is pretty good. Jesus said, I'd not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And again, I think this Old Testament text comes into play here. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. And now you go, okay, kingdom of heaven, we have a king. And we have servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And you've perhaps heard uh, it said that this is 
this is a debt you can't repay in your lifetime, especially if you're a servant. Like it's too much money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, his wife and his children. This is just typical in that uh, generation. Obviously, you're talking about indentured service. So they're sold so that a payment could be made. And even then, the payment's not, of course, going to be able to be made complete. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. Irony, irony of that is he can't actually ever repay him everything. Out of pity or compassion, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. That same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Now, this is a decent debt. Uh, denarii is, for an average worker, a day's wage. So it's 100 days wage. So it's, it's a decent amount of debt. You're talking about three months or so. Um, so he seized him. He began to choke him. And he, he says, pay what you owe. But automatically, we kind of get this sense of injustice in this text. Like, wait a second. What is going on? He refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, the injustice, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have, who had, have mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in his anger, he, his master delivered him to the jailers till they should pay that debt. Now verse 35 is that clincher, but also coherence with Jesus' other teaching. So also, my heavenly Father, will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother, from your heart. Now, this is another one of those parables that can't that forces us to not stay in neutral. Jesus teaches this kind of idea about forgiveness in other places. If you've truly experienced the forgiveness of God, the natural response is to forgive other people around you. Now, he teaches us to pray in Luke as well as in Matthew. Um, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And then he'll go on to say something similar to this. Um, this is a pretty strong teaching of Jesus, that our experience of grace, it's not that we're saved by um, forgiving other people. It's just if we have truly experienced and we have responded to this forgiveness that is unwarranted, undeserved, unpayable, then we'll go to those who have done things against us that may even seem unpayable, insurmountable, and we will forgive them and free them from whatever forgiveness they've had. This is coherent with Jesus' other teaching. This is another example of where sometimes background information helps give a little bit of nuance to it. But also we go, okay, this falls in line with other things that Jesus have, has taught. Um, the probably the most difficult thing about this parable is not understanding it. It's actually like living it when we have people who have hurt us and, and wounded us. Um, so we have the, these dynamics. A um, couple more, uh, unless uh, you have any questions about that. Okay, uh, and, and not in your handout, sorry. Um, so a couple that are familiar, and we're just going to brief over these. One of them, Good Samaritan. And, and we know this because we have unexpected. So we have priest, we have Levite, we have Samaritan. I'm teaching this to fifth graders um, a couple weeks ago, and the fifth grade boys are like, I don't even know what a Samaritan is. So at times we do have to know what is the historical background. I told them the story of where the Samaritans and the Jewish people were like breaking into each other's temples and bringing human bones and desecrating each other's temples. And then like the Jews just go up and destroy the temple of the Samaritans. And then they're like, oh. And then, of course, I pulled the football analogy on. It's like, you know, a Packers fan and a Green Bay Packers fan. And the Green Bay Packers fan comes over, or, or a Vikings fan comes over to a Green Bay Packers fan's house where he has all of his Packers stuff set up and paints it all purple. 
And the boys were like, oh, like you could just see like this rivalry raise up inside of them. And I said, um, and this Samaritan and the Jewish uh, community, this is the rivalry they have. And so for this Samaritan to be called good is just weird. And sometimes we need to understand some of the storylines so that we get some of the twists that Jesus has uh, in the storyline. Um, similar thing um, as we walk through some of Jesus's other parables. Some of them are just obvious and we have to go. Who am I? So I want to end with this one. And and you mentioned it. It's the story of the seed. And the story of the seed asks the question about faith. And and, and maybe part of it goes, you know, am I the one who's like the farmer or working with the farmer, just planting seed everywhere? Do you ever ever get frustrated feeling like you don't really know what seed is going to bear fruit, like in the relationships and people that you're dialoguing with? There is great freedom in recognizing that you're not actually responsible for that. Like the farmer in that parable just looks like he's just like haphazardly throwing seed everywhere. That's not how we farm. At least it's not as far as I'm aware. You know, we don't see seed like thrown over the interstate and those kinds of things. But this farmer is, seems to be fairly haphazard. He's just tossing seed everywhere he can. And maybe some of it's going to bear fruit. Um, and God is kind of like that. I mean, he calls us to be kind of like that, to not be judgmental and to not necessarily try to be, you know, overly discerning of what's going to bear fruit and what's not, just to like plant seed and some of it's going to bear fruit. And yet we know that in some hearts, at first it seems like they're growing and something happens and their faith is choked out. And sometimes that, that faith is the worry of this life or sometimes it's money and, and it's choked out. And we go, what happened? Well, Jesus goes, that's kind of how it is in the kingdom. So sometimes Jesus' parable lets us see and discern other people and go, yeah, that, those are some of the things that happen. Sometimes it asks the question about us. Is my heart too hard? Have I allowed worry and money to come and choke out my faith? Am I at that phase? Is my faith bearing fruit? And in some of those parables, even as he walks alongside and explains it to the disciples, we need to ask the question, who am I in this story? And so whether it's the story of the prodigal son, who am I in the story? Am I the son? Do I have elements of the father who, is, who are welcoming home? Am I, am I the youngest son or am I the oldest son? Who, When someone comes in and follows God, I go, now wait a second. Or maybe it's the workers in the vineyard that someone comes in and they've only been a Christian for a little while and yet they're promised all the same things. But you've been faithful your entire life and you're like, it's not fair. They just had this like late hour conversion before and they get the same thing. No, if it's grace and it's greater than what we deserve, it's still grace. And so these parables at times prod us to go, is this me? Is this something I struggle with? Um, I love the fact that Jesus tells stories because I love, uh, maybe it's because I'm simple, um, but I love being able to, to have these images correspond, but also stories that prod and poke. Um, so as, as we look at these, um, kind of wrapping up on this lesson, we're going to talk about Old Testament stuff next week as we get together uh, and really wrap up the next couple weeks. Um, so as you're looking at these and if you have questions, we can dialogue with them as we get back. Any questions you know, before we close out today? Any questions that you all have? Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com